0: Hey everyone, I'm George Davis, and I want to thank you for joining us for this online service of the Hershey Free Church. I also want to thank Jan for sharing that story with us, and I look forward to hearing about further conversations. Here at Hershey Free, we talk a lot about bridge building, and when we talk about building bridges with others, uh, that is a great example of what this looks like. So thanks again, Jan, for that story. If you've got a Bible, either a hard copy on a mobile device, I'm going to ask you to join with me to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 in the Old Testament as we continue our journey entitled Love This Book Part 2. Now, as you do that, I, I just want to acknowledge, I know some of you are new or newer to our church. In fact, some of you have joined us online, but you've never actually been in the building. You've never actually been here on a Sunday. And I just want to note uh, that at some point, we, we do look forward to welcoming you in person So, if you at some point are ready to take that step, please note that if you go to hfcinfo.com in the bottom right hand corner, you'll see a link that says plan a visit. And that will help you plan your visit for the first time. And it's a great way to help us get connected. So, I just wanted to draw your attention to that. And I, I look forward to meeting you personally. As I said, we're continuing our journey through the Old Testament entitled Love This Book. Now, as we've gone through the storyline of the Old Testament, we've reached the point where the nation of Israel is, is established in the land, and as you begin working through the material in, in 1 Samuel, we reach a point where the nation asks for a king, and so Saul becomes the first king of Israel. We read about his reign in that book, and, and yet by the middle of the book, we've been introduced to a new character someone who will ultimately overshadow Saul as a leader, someone who will ultimately overshadow him as a king, and that is the individual who will become the most famous king in Israel's history, David. As the storyline continues, uh, Saul perceives that David is a threat, yet despite Saul's best efforts, David will become the future king. And as the book comes to a close, Saul's reign is coming to an end. And that happens. Saul dies. Yet his, his death doesn't lead to a natural transition because there, there's division and factionalism within Israel. And finally, after David has reigned for seven years, he's able to truly unite the country. And as part of that effort, he, he relocates the capital of Israel to a central region, to the city of Jerusalem. And he, that's where he will establish his capital. And so by the time we get to 2 Samuel, uh, in, in many ways, David just seems to be racking up one success after another, right? He's, he's become king. He has defeated Israel's foreign enemies like the Philistines. He's united the country. He's bringing people together. He's starting a new capital that's centrally located, and all these positive things are going on. And, and really, you know, in so many ways, as you read through David's life, I think you come away saying, this, this is a guy that just knew how to live life fully. I mean, this is a guy who just knew how to squeeze all the vitality and significance and purpose out of life. His, his life is filled with amazing stories and unbelievable adventures. Every moment seems to be important. Nothing is wasted. And before we get to the text, let's, let's just stop here. And I realize our lives, our lives look very differently than his. But I want to ask you this question as we come to this text. And I want to ask you just to, to fill in this blank, to finish this statement. How would you finish this statement? I can live life fully when? How would, how would you finish that statement? As I've said, David was, was someone whose life was, seemed to be always filled with meaning and purpose and vitality who flourished in life, a man who truly flourished in life. So what, what does that look like for you? I think whether we realize it or not, in some ways in the back of our minds, we're, we're always filling in this blank. I can live life fully when? So just take a moment and in your own mind, finish that statement. <laughs> Maybe you'd say, you know what? I can live life fully when COVID is over. Right now, I feel so limited. Maybe you'd say, you know what, I can live life fully when, when I'm older and on my own. When I'm more secure financially. Maybe you'd say, you know what, I live life fully when key relationships in my life go well. I live life fully when I'm given the right opportunities. So however, however you finish this statement, just, just keep that in mind for a moment. I can live life fully when... And as you have that in mind, let's now come to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And in many ways, this passage is going to show us something that really is central to David's life. I think something that is foundational to how he lived fully. Something that really was crucial to how David was able to squeeze the vitality and meaning purpose out of life and nothing was wasted. So what does David do in this chapter? What is so central and foundational to his approach to life? Well, the the answer is this David worships. David worships. Now, to show you what this looks like in his life and the the difference it can make, what I want to do over the next few moments is just together, let's walk through this story. So, let's now come to 2 Samuel chapter 6. So, as we begin the chapter, here's what we read. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, that is his army that had just defeated his foreign foes, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah. This is just a small town, just a few miles northwest of Jerusalem. And they went there to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Now, remember what's just happened, right? David is uniting the country. He's building a new capital. He's just defeated the Philistines. And let's be honest, I think for many leaders, this would be a great moment to take a victory lap. This would be a great moment just to celebrate. Look at all that's happened under my leadership. But David doesn't do that. Instead, here's what he does. As he is building the new capital, he wants worship to be central to this new endeavor. Central to the life of the nation. So he, right, he takes this huge army to this tiny village. It had to be overwhelming for this little village. And, and this was where the Ark of the Covenant had been for years. And his goal is he's, he's now going to bring that Ark to the new capital. Now remember the, the Ark, which kind of looks something like this, had played a central role in Israel's history. Previously, this sacred piece of furniture had been located in the most sacred part of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. And later, it would be located in the same part of Solomon's temple. And this sacred piece of furniture, as as is emphasized in the text, was really the manifestation of God's presence. It represented God's presence among his people. That's why the narrator takes time to describe it the way he does. So David's now plan, his plan is, I'm I'm going to bring this to Jerusalem. This is going to be central as we build a house for God to the the life of the nation. By the way, as, as we continue, just notice the poles that are attached to this ark. I'll come back to that in a moment. So David and his huge army, they set out to move the ark. And as we continue in 2 Samuel 6, they place it on a cart. And they begin begin the journey, just a few miles to Jerusalem. And as they go, it's this amazing procession. There's music, there's singing, there's dancing, there's celebration. But then then something unexpected happens. This this cart is being pulled by oxen. and, and, And for some reason, one of the oxen begins to stumble. And there's a guy by the name of... Uzzah who's who's walking alongside of the ark, and as the ark begins to stumble, he's worried that it might slide off the cart. And so as as it moves forward, he places his hand on the ark to steady it. And when that happens, he drops dead. And our natural response is this. What's going on here? The text tells us that as he dropped dead, God's anger burned against them for this irreverent act. And we're kind of like, well, wait. Why did God have to do this? I mean, this guy was just trying to keep keep the ark from falling off the cart. It doesn't seem right. And interestingly, as we read further, David gets angry. He's angry at God. I think maybe... (laughs) Maybe he's angry at himself, you know? Maybe I should have just left well enough alone. Maybe I should have just left the ark in this out-of-the-way place and it wouldn't have mattered. And in the midst of all of our questions about this scene, the reality is this. David and his men had encountered the reality of God's holiness. The reality of his majesty, his, his moral purity, his transcendence distinctiveness from us. And with his holiness comes his righteous anger against all that is morally impure, against everything that violates his character. And that's what David had witnessed firsthand. Remember, God had given specific directions in the Mosaic law as to how the ark was to be moved. It wasn't to be placed on a cart. It was to be carried by priests. Remember the poles that we saw? Furthermore, it was, it was never to be touched. So now David, David has encountered God's holiness. And here's what happens. David was afraid. He was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? David's fearful. You and I would be too. And then he asked this profound question, right? How can the ark ever come to me? In other words, how can, how can sinful and broken people actually relate to a holy God? So what does David do? <laughs> well, here's what he does. He ends the procession. The insert right there. And, 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 in, and in essence, he backs away. He finds someone I've undoubtedly living close by by the name of Oded Edom. And, and he tells Obedee Edom, hey, look, I, I, I'm going to leave the ark with you. And I could only imagine that conversation, right? You just need to store this. You just keep it. And by the way, whatever you do, do not touch it. And I, I, I really think, perhaps at that moment, from David's perspective, this was the ultimate white elephant gift. Now, even though this is a very unusual situation, maybe... Maybe at some point you found yourself, in essence, standing there with David, resting with, with the reality of God's holiness. Maybe you found yourself saying, you know, you've read scripture, you've heard sermons, you know, this, 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 this doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem fair. How, can, how does God's holiness and his love and his justice, how, how do all these attributes work together? And for some, I think when they wrestle with those questions, you know what? It's just easier to back away. It's just easier just to walk away. Don't don't take God seriously. Maybe for me, you know, it feels easier just to compare myself with others, and you know, so much more comfortable just to in, in when we think about being followers of Christ. Just to think about how we're doing in light of other people, because often when we compare ourselves to others, maybe we feel like we're coming out on top. We're doing reasonably well. Yet, yet when we talk about God's holiness, that's when that's when we can become uncomfortable. That's that's maybe when we start to feel uneasy. So let's just back away from that. Furthermore, and perhaps from a different perspective, I think for some, there are places of deep brokenness, even shame in our lives. So as, as we seek to come to grips with God's holiness, for some, it can feel like, God's holiness is simply opening and exposing old wounds, feelings of brokenness, feelings of shame. And, and in many ways, we, we wrestle with the same question David wrestled with. You know, how can how can I come into a relationship with a holy God? So, like David, for some of us, and maybe you've done this, it's just easy to back off, right? It's easy, in essence, to say this is for other people. Just back off. So, so David backs off. He leaves the ark, and the truth is a few weeks pass. But then something, something surprising happens. David gets this message. Hey, David, you remember Oded you remember Edom? You remember the guy you gave the ark to? Well, you're, David, you're not going to believe it, but, but since the ark has been in his household, in amazing ways his household has been blessed. And I wonder if that news didn't bring back to David the promises that had been made to Abraham. Remember, God said, you know what, I'm going to be with you. I'm, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the world through you. And I'm wondering if this situation didn't bring back to David's mind the reality that God really wants to be with his people that he is pursuing a relationship and that he is faithful to his promises. But but for us to be in relationship with him, he has to make that possible. We can't do that on our own. And so David, I think he he goes back to the law and he begins to see God's God's desire. He's reminded of God's desire to be in relationship with us and, and how God seeks to make that possible for this relationship to work. And so then he heads back out, and he's going to start over. He's going to, it's, this is a do-over. We're going to continue bringing the ark to Jerusalem, but this time we're going to do it very differently. So as we continue in the chapter, here's what we read. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Now, as David resumes the procession, notice that he does three things differently. First of all, notice that the ark is being carried. Right, It's not on a cart. It's being carried according to the guidance of of the Mosaic law, and it's being carried by priests, and we learn that from 1 Chronicles. Secondly, all along the way, as they are bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, they're, they're making sacrifices. I mean, David had remembered that, you know, to come, into, to come into God's presence requires sacrifice for sin. And so all along the way, there are these burnt offerings that are taking place. Furthermore, they are fellowship offerings that, that represent the importance of fellowship and relationship with God. So David is bringing the ark back. It's being carried. It's not on a cart. They're making sacrifices all along the way. And the third thing that is different is this. Notice that David is wearing a linen ephod. And simply put, this, the, this, was, this was the clothing of a priest. Yes, David is king, But in some sense, I think we're being reminded that that role is not the most central to who he is. Because ultimately he is someone who worships God, and you know as we as we see this new procession taking place, and as we see what David is doing as he 's processing all that he 's experienced, um, I think we we get an understanding of what worship looks like in this chapter, what worship looks like here in the life of david and I would just describe it simply this way: worship is is acknowledging who God is and, and doing what he says i mean that 's what David has started to do to acknowledge the reality of, of who God is and to take him seriously as he seeks to obey and with that in mind, he is worshiping all along the way as he brings the ark into Jerusalem so they they make their way slowly into the city and I mean it 's just this amazing scene there 's singing there 's dancing there 's celebration and David is leading the procession with unbridled enthusiasm. It's it's an amazing scene, and, and, you know, such a powerful scene, such a wonderful scene, but then there is another twist in the story. Because as it turns out, not everyone is excited about what's going on. So as we continue in chapter 6, we read this. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. That's really a loaded, sarcastic phrase, isn't it? Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Now, Michael was David's wife, and clearly she is upset by all of this. She sees what David is doing, and, and from her perspective, this, this is beneath you. You're the king. You're not supposed to act this way. This is embarrassing for you. You're embarrassing yourself. Furthermore, I think she feels like, you're in, and you're embarrassing me as your wife. But what, what, what I, one of the things I find interesting here is notice how the narrator describes her. Elsewhere in Samuel, he, he describes her as David's wife. But here he doesn't describe her as David's wife. He describes her what? As the daughter of of Saul. And I think that's important because in a subtle way what the narrator is saying is this, do you remember how her father worshiped? Well, she's now doing the same thing. She's her father's daughter. And when we go back earlier in the pages of Samuel, there're certain scenes where when when we review the life of Saul, it's just clear he he was seeking to worship God, but he didn't necessarily take God seriously. At times, it feels like he worshiped God for what he could get out of it. For instance, I don't know if you remember this one scene, he's rebuked rebuked by the prophet Samuel for his disobedience, and, and in essence, Saul says, look, look, I know I blew it, I know I messed up, but will you just appear with me in public as we worship so that others will see us worshiping together? And in a similar way, I think Michael here seems bound up by what other people are thinking. She's concerned about how this looks to other people, and consequently, she's not able to fully engage the moment. By contrast, when you look at David, he's coming into Jerusalem. I think what you see is both flourishing and freedom. First of all, you know, as as he's, as he's chosen to worship, to acknowledge who God is and seek to obey him, he's flourishing. He's bringing the country together. And furthermore, the text tells us he's blessing households all along the way. I mean, the, the, the grace, the generosity that is work in his life is overflowing to other people. He's flourishing. And furthermore, it's part of that flourishing. There, I think there's, there's a freedom in this moment. I mean, his wife seems all bound up about how she's perceived, how he's perceived by others. But David isn't. I mean, there's a freedom in this moment for him. I mean, he's not simply defined by his achievements or his role. Ultimately, he is defined by his relationship with God. He's defined as a worshiper. And with that just comes this this flourishing and this freedom. And so my question to you is this, as you see this moment in David's life, do you know that flourishing? Do you know that freedom? Remember, a few moments ago, I asked you to finish this statement. I can live fully when, right? I can live fully when. What if you put worship in that blank? What if you put worship in that blank? What would your life look like? How might your life be different? Interestingly, um, Psalm 89 is a psalm that in some ways reflects back on David's relationship with God. And in that psalm, we read these words. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. Blessed are those, you can also translate it this way, flourishing are those who have learned to worship. Flourishing are those who have learned to worship. You see, the reality is this, and we, I think we see this in this story of David, human flourishing flows out of worship. Human flourishing flows out of worship. And as the story continues... I think we reach a point where where you and I really come in. Because there is one more surprise in this story. Remember, David David has brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem because he wants worship to be central to the life of his nation. And I think his expectation would be this, that he would build a house, he would build a temple for God. However, in chapter 7, he is told this by God. God basically says, David, here's the deal. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. In other words, David, you're not going to build the temple that will ultimately be built by Solomon. But instead, God promises, God makes a covenant with David that David's royal line will be eternal. And we see this clearly in chapter 7. Your house, that is your descendants, And your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David, David, you're going to have descendants. In fact, David, you have no idea how many descendants you will have. And a king from your family will rule forever. This this is what... This is what this covenant with David anticipates. It anticipates God's work through Christ. It it anticipates God's church. And in many ways, this this statement anticipates us as followers of Jesus. Now, in understanding how the Bible fits together, uh, 2 Samuel 7, I think, is a major building block to recognize. Earlier we've, we we focused on Genesis chapter twelve, God's promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the world through you. Now with that building block, we add another building block. Second Samuel seven, because we understand that that promise of blessing is going to come through the Davidic line. It is going to come through a royal king who will endure forever, who will establish his kingdom. And that king will be Jesus Christ, and he will establish his kingdom. He will make it possible for us to truly worship through his death and resurrection. And when we understand that, I think in a real sense we understand that, you know what, you and I, we've been invited into this story. We've been invited to worship like David. We've been invited into this place of flourishing and freedom because human flourishing flows out of worship. With that in mind, I I really want to leave you with this passage from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55. In Isaiah 55, we read these words, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And what this is, it's an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to flourishing and freedom, right? Based on God's grace, because clearly it's not something that you buy, it's something that you achieve. It's something that God is making possible through his fulfillment of promises. So there's an invitation to worship, an invitation to flourish, to freedom. And then the author asks this question. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? And I think the implication is this. If you don't take this invitation to worship seriously, there will be other things that bind up your life. If you, you don't take this invitation to worship seriously at times, you will find yourself sitting next to Michael, frustrated, angry, disappointed. Maybe I I haven't taken seriously God's greatness and his goodness. So in the last few months, I found myself really bound up by my lack of control. Maybe, Maybe I haven't taken seriously God's justice and his faithfulness, so I found myself bound up by anger in certain relationships. Maybe in my failure to worship, I've, I've developed a critical spirit, and it's poisoning my approach to life, poisoning my relationships. And maybe right now, you just, you just need to acknowledge that there is something getting in the way of worship. After the, that question, the author says this, give ear and come to me. There's the invitation, the invitation to worship. Listen, that you may live, worship, because that worship will lead to flourishing and freedom. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love. Notice this, promised to David. You and I, we were invited into the bigger storyline of Scripture, the story that we have just read about, the story of the promises of David. The story where worship leads to human flourishing. So, are you part of that story? And are you living in worship? Because when you, when you fill in that blank with worship, it really is a way of life that leads to flourishing. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come to this text, we see kind of just the bigger-than-life character of David. And yet, even though his life is so different than ours, I pray that we would understand that in a real sense, we've been invited into the story. Because in the story, we see him learning to worship. And, and we also see that there are promises made to him that now involve us. Through the work of Christ, we're invited into the same story. And I pray that we, we would even now be willing to acknowledge or confront anything that is getting in the way Of our worship, getting in the way of acknowledging you and seeking to do what you say. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ who makes this possible. Amen. So now, as we start a new week, the invitation of the storyline of the Bible is to worship an invitation that you and I need to understand leads to our flourishing and our freedom. Amen.